America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is The Michael Medved Show. Another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. Uh, there are all kinds of questions that people would like to ask President Biden. They'd like to ask President Trump. Uh, maybe even some people would like to ask some questions of, uh, um, oh, say, Vice President Harris. But uh, there are questions in general about the election drama that has uh, already been kicked off. It is unprecedented. There is no historical precedent whatsoever of having an announced front-running candidate for president two years before the election. But that's what we have, and what we have are six big questions also for the first six months of uh, the pre-presidential campaign drama. That's the name of a terrific piece that appeared over at the Hill website. It is written by Myra Adams, who writes about politics and religion for numerous publications. She is a real clear politics contributor, and she also writes a Sunday uh, Bible study on town hall. Uh, she served on the creative team of two GOP presidential campaigns. That was uh, for President George W. Bush's triumphal reelection campaign in 2004, and for Senator McCain in 2008. Uh, Myra Adams, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a great pleasure. The, the first big question is really the biggest one in which the American people appear to have made up their minds. But uh, the question is, will President Biden run for re-election? Uh, or will he announce at some point that uh, if he, for whatever reason he uh, adduces, is not going to make the race. The, the, the polling is overwhelming that even a third of Democrats don't want him to run again, right? That is correct. I think right now he is tormented by this decision. I know over Thanksgiving it was written that he had the family meeting, <laughs> and they decided, you know, hopefully they decided. Who knows what they decided, but I'm certainly sure it was a difficult meeting. And uh, right now nobody knows. I don't even think he knows, honestly. But we do know that if he doesn't run, all political hell will break loose. And uh, that's because there is no obvious successor. In other words, if if uh, I think we can agree that if, if Trump right now withdrew, uh, which uh, is something else ardently to wish for, if Trump withdrew from the race, there, there would be a very clear front runner uh, who would be Governor DeSantis. But uh, who would the Democratic front runner be if, if Biden withdrew? Well, by virtue of her title, it would be the vice president. But that is a problem because her favorable rating is worse than his. And she is she's just not very popular. She's not seen as a strong candidate. And that puts more pressure on him if he does decide to run because he will be 82 uh, he literally turns 82 like two weeks after Election Day in uh, 2024. So you have an 82-year-old president with a very unpopular vice president, assuming she is still on the ticket, 
Uh, and that puts more pressure on, on her and makes people say, oh, my goodness, what if there's you know, something tragic happens and it's President Harris? It's like, oh, my goodness. So the Republicans are really going to hammer that home if he does declare that he is going to run and keeps her on the ticket. Republicans are just going to hammer that nonstop. You know, President Harris, President Harris, I mean, just who knows what's going to happen. But they, they are going to be saying that over and over again. Yeah, there's also the the question, and to do your questions in order, um, will President Biden run for re-election? Uh, you expect that because of the president saying that he would and make the announcement early next year, uh, that probably by the end of January he will have given some indication. Is that right? Well, he has actually said that. He actually said that by uh, the beginning of next year. Those are his words. So all we can do is is just wait and see what happens. Um, obviously, that sets the tone for the entire 2024 race. Uh, but then you will also have a situation where if he declines to run, he would be a, a lame duck for two years. And that does have, I believe, I wrote this in my piece, national security implications. Because I think our enemies would think that that's a sign of weakness in our country, and they may act more aggressively. That's just pure speculation. But a two-year lame duck, um, that that doesn't happen. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> especially again a lame duck with with that vice president there. You you also speculate uh, later in the piece about. Uh, if they, if the Biden campaign does decide to run again, they would probably see it as a priority to replace uh, Kamala Harris. But how would how would they do that uh, without without incurring all kinds of wrath from uh, uh, people who were celebrating her uh, annunciation as vice president as a uh, great step forward for America because she's female and black. Well, I also say that I think she is not easily replaceable. No vice president is easily replaceable. So it would have to be a situation where her poll numbers are showing that she is really pulling him down. It would have to be a real crisis situation for him to replace her. So I'm not really saying that she's going to be replaced. I think they probably, you know, some strategist sitting in the, the DNC probably want to replace her. But, you know, that that's just not really going to be possible because she is the base of the party. She's a woman and she's not a non-white woman. And those two demographic categories are the base of the Republican Party. So I, I think she's Democratic a, Party. I, I don't know how they can they can replace her. Democratic Party, you meant? The, of the Democrat Party, she is yes. the you know she's the base of the Democrat Party. Yeah, and uh, okay, one of the things you speculate about in your piece, which is fascinating, which is a potential strategy for uh, dumping her, would be. Um, uh, either that she runs for Diane Feinstein's seat in the Senate, which is coming up, and Diane Feinstein, is, that is really deeply embarrassing. I mean, the one situation that she has, she is much less uh, sharp 
and up to date than uh, than Joe Biden himself, and she's she's also older, and uh, so she is not widely expected to run for re-election, and so Kamala Harris could try to go back to the Senate from California, taking Dianne Feinstein's seat, or, uh, and I thought this was fascinating, uh, Biden could try to appoint her to the Supreme Court if there is another Supreme Court vacancy. Is she confirmable? Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? I mean, this is all like speculation upon speculation. Uh, again, um, we just have to wait and see because even something like this even happening is is just really not on the radar at all. I mean, part of being an opinion writer is you can you know you can speculate about things, you can bring things up, and they're kind of fun to talk about. But you know whether or not it really comes down to you know she being replaced on the ticket and then what would she do afterwards? Uh, it's really fun to talk about. It's parlor talk. So who knows? You just don't know, and that's what makes politics so exciting. You know, one of the things I write in here is expect the unexpected. Uh, that is the only surefire political axiom that we can just count on all the time. Just expect things to happen that we have no idea are going to happen. Okay, we will continue to look at those things and these six big questions uh, that will be answered. Uh, sometime in the next six months of this presidential epic campaign. We'll be right back with Myra Adams uh, coming up on the Michael Medved. Michael Medved Show, joined by Myra Adams, who is a real clear politics contributor. She has a, a new column, and uh, the column is uh, about the six big questions that need to be answered as this election uh, season, this very big election that uh, we, we not only choose. Uh, 33 new members of the Senate, 23 of those people who are up next time are going to be Democrats, which means it'll be a tough year for them to hold the Senate. But uh, uh, also the question of the president of the United States, where the nomination on both sides is very much in question. Uh, you ask, one of the questions you ask is uh, what will be the early Republican perspective in 2023. And you acknowledge in your piece that it is completely unprecedented that there is a declared presidential candidate uh, who is, happens to be the front runner this early before Election Day in 2024. That's, um, and as you put it, that's not an easy position uh, to withhold. Uh, what what makes Trump particularly vulnerable during uh, these two years? Well, what makes him vulnerable is just trying to maintain excitement and the money and just keep interest going, because you basically have two years. That is an eternity in politics. That's actually centuries. <laughs> so all I can say with him is is watch out, watch your back, 
And there are going to be a lot of other candidates that are going to want to knock him down. And as we also know, bizarre things happen with Donald Trump, as what happened with the uh, the dinner at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, that's going to generate fallout that I think is worse than um, what he tried to do in 2020 to overturn the election. Did you uh, hear about uh, the statement this morning by uh, Kanye West, by Ye, on the uh, Alex Jones Infowars show? Uh, I did not. Uh, he said every human being has value that they brought to the table, especially Hitler. And he oh, said okay. uh, he, I, yeah. mm -hmm. he loved Nazis and uh, uh, there are good things about Hitler. <laughs> I mean, it's, okay. it's and and again, he was comparing that and the Nazis, uh, who he said invented microphones. Hitler invented microphones. He invented highways, and comparing that to uh, Jewish people who were trying to control his contracts and uh, all of uh, the the media and the banks and killing people. Okay. Well, welcome to uh, Life in America. Uh, when you have these crazy people dominate headlines, and don't, don't you think that don't you think that so we're insane. talking about President Trump and the impact on his campaign? Don't you think he has to go a little bit further than he has to try to dissociate himself from people like Ye and Nick Fuentes? Absolutely, because what it does is it brands every office holder as an anti-Semite and a racist and a, and a white nationalist. Uh, if he doesn't come out and and basically say, this is unacceptable, I have no more contact with ye, then it's still not even going to help because Trump has been a friend with him for a long time. It's, it's really a matter of Donald Trump has to decide if he's going to be a role model for a future president more than what he's ever been before. So it's all going to be up to him, his behavior, and whether or not the American people want to deal with this continuous drama. Well, one of the questions that you ask in the piece that you think will be answered is that by June of uh, 2023, will the Justice Department have issued some kind of indictment uh, against President Trump? Well, I believe that they have to at some point. They can't let this go on forever. Uh, they have to. And and that just has its whole host of questions that come from it. Either way, there are going to be massive political consequences. So you have to have the law. <laughs> that, that's really what it comes down to. The only playbook is the law. Did he break the law? And if Trump broke the law, then he should be indicted. And it's it's really as simple as that. And it, just politics getting in the middle of it, um, you know, obviously mucks it up. But it's we are a nation of law. And that is, I think Merrick Garland has said that on several occasions also. I, I do know that there are some people, I speak to them, uh, who are very strong Trump supporters. And uh, they they believe that if he is indicted for the documents at Mar-a-Lago, for not returning documents that he was supposed to have returned, that there are a lot of people who will think he is being victimized, he is being attacked again, he is being made an example of, 
that this would never have happened to Barack Obama or anybody else who did some. And after all, it's it, what? Where is the harm? Uh, where is the damage? Really, he broke some regulations about holding documents. Uh, do you think uh, that is a a, a case that uh, Trump and his supporters are likely to make? Well, the victim <laughs> playing the victim card starts with Donald Trump. He actually said that just recently that he's a victim. So that, that and that was his announcement of candidacy. Yeah, he's a victim. Okay, fine. If you're a victim, we're all victims. But where's the law? And the law is pretty clear. You cannot take classified documents and hide them and keep them from the government when the government wants them back. I mean, it's it's actually pretty simple. So if an average person had done what he did, that person would already be in jail. And there's already been you know, many circumstances where people have taken classified documents, sometimes even by accident, um, and they have had you know, consequences. So, again, it goes down to the law. Are we a nation of laws or are we not? So, and, I, and I just believe that, that, is, that is the question that the American people you know, really want an answer to. Well, we will be getting our answers. Let me ask you very quickly. You've written warmly about uh, Governor DeSantis as uh, if if it is not Ron DeSantis uh, as the alternative to Trump. Is there somebody from that lesser tier who you think is likely to emerge? Well, somebody has to emerge. We know that. But yeah, but I'm saying if it's not Ron DeSantis, then who? Yes, no, somebody... That's what I mean. Someone besides Ron DeSantis will emerge. Who that's going to be, there's no obvious front-runner. Um, DeSantis, you could say, is the front-runner right now, but he's not been proven on a national stage. Um, obviously, Pence is throwing his hat in the ring at some point. Mike Pompeo, Nikki Haley, Ted Cruz. I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be crazy. It's going to be a circus. We know that. And, you know, may the best person win. Don't forget about Tim Scott. Uh, uh, Myra Adams, a pleasure speaking with you. Her piece is posted up at our website uh, under the heading uh, Six Big Questions About the Next Six Months of This Presidential Epic. We'll be right back with a rapper facing the death penalty. Why? We'll get to it on the MedVet Channel. Medved show. Uh, there is news of a uh, rapper who is in trouble uh, with uh, the government, and it's not the usual thing you might hear of uh, illegal possession of a firearm or a shooting or uh, a drug violation of any kind. This is serious. Uh, this is somebody who is uh, uh, being charged. Uh, with a uh, very intense crime, which is um, basically a war against the earth. The uh, Washington Post reports uh, corruption on earth is the actual title of the charge over in the Islamic Republic of Iran. The uh, Tumaj Salahi is no stranger to controversy, reports the Washington Post. Last year... The uh, 
Iranian rapper was arrested for songs criticizing the government and denouncing those he described as apologists for the Iranian government abroad. He was released on bail earlier this year, but it wasn't long before he found himself in prison again, and this time he may pay the ultimate price, which involves execution. The 31-year-old uh, rapper was among thousands of Iranians who took to the streets across the country to protest the death of 22-year-old Kurdish-Iranian woman in custody of the so-called morality police. Amasa Gina Amini was arrested on September 13th for allegedly wearing an improper hijab. She didn't even have bare hair. She had an improper hijab, and she died three days later, sparking a nationwide uprising, together with the reports and assumptions that she was brutalized by the so-called morality police who had arrested her. In uh, one video that he shared on Instagram, Tumar Salahi, this rapper, called on fellow Iranians to support the uprising in any way they could, while fellow demonstrators shouted anti-government uh, slogans. He also channeled his anger in the way he knew best with searing and uncompromising lyrics directed against the country's establishment. We come from the bottom, we hit the top of the pyramid, Salahi's most recent track opened. He went on to describe the current upheaval as the Islamic Republic's a year of colossal failure. He also rapped about the victims of the Iranian justice system, including uh, the one whose crime was hair that moved in the wind. Uh-huh. In a direct reference to protesters uh, opposing the mandatory hijab. Less than a week later, Salahi was arrested again. For his friends and relatives, there was little news at first. His family has not been allowed to meet with him. While the uh, lawyer that they appointed says he has not been allowed to see the details of the case. This is the way it works over in the uh, Islamic Republic. Then came the news on Sunday that Salahi was accused of corruption on earth one of the charges leveled against at least five people who have been sentenced to death by courts in Tehran over the protests. Uh, in an interview with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, uh, recorded shortly before his arrest, Salahi said, Joy is a crime in Iran. Dancing is a crime in Iran. A free Iran, in my opinion, is a country where plainclothes policemen cannot abduct you from the streets and then have the law... Uh, protect them. A free Iran, in my opinion, is a country where regime agents do not have license to commit rape. Uh, more than 450 people have been killed in the 74 days since the protest began, including more than 60 children. Uh, that, uh, according to the United Nations. As many as 15,000 protesters have been arrested. Germany's foreign minister said last week the uh, United States, uh, Nations human rights body has ordered an investigation into the crackdown against the protesters. And that's a good thing, I guess. But again, what, what do you do except try to uh, at least have people of conscience uh, achieve some kind of unity in rejection of 
this evil regime and the evil regime in Russia that props it up and supports it and benefits by getting Iranian drones that they use against the Ukrainians and uh, to to recognize that there is a difference and a profound difference between regimes that are that are evil that will arrest someone and potentially execute him for corruption on earth because of a song that he sang and uh, that he publicized that was critical of the regime. There's uh, also over here, one of the things I, you remember about Iran is that there, there's very little uh, responsibility on the part of the, the leaders of that country in terms of telling anything like the truth about their country or what's going on in their country. I, I, I think of the time that uh, uh, the president, uh, Ahmadinejad, uh, who we referred to on the air as President Ahmadinejad job, uh, he he was invited to speak at Columbia University, and uh, he was asked uh, at Columbia University about the treatment of homosexuals in Iran, and he's he's delivers some startling news that I'd never heard before, which is he said there are no homosexuals in Iran, and. When you are facing potential prison terms and death penalties and things like that, okay, I, I understand. It, it may be difficult. They probably do not have any kind of gay pride parade. But uh, here in the United States, there is a, a new development which is making news, which is that uh, the number of same-sex uh, couple households in the U.S. has gone past one million for the first time ever. Uh, there were more than 1.2 million same-sex couple households across the country in 2021. That was up from 540,000 back in 2008, an increase of 120%. The data is taken from the Census Bureau's annual American Community Survey. About 710,000, 59% of the same-sex couple households were married. And about 500,000, uh, 41% were unmarried. And what's fascinating about that is that that is not that dissimilar from the statistics between married and unmarried uh, among couples who had heterosexual couples who were living together. The number of married same-sex households started to outnumber unmarried same-sex households in 2016 following the Supreme Court's landmark Obergefell versus Hodges ruling. The release of this new data uh, coincides with the advancement of landmark legislation that codifies federal protection for marriages of same-sex couples. The Respect for Marriage Act was approved by a vote of 61 to 36 in the Senate, a bipartisan vote and now returns to the House for a final vote before it can go to President Joe Biden, who has said he looks forward to enacting it. Um, is this number relevant at all? I, I think it is because it suggests the extent to which uh, this is an issue that has been decided.
And it has been decided not just by the Supreme Court. It's been decided by the American people. And uh, the idea of going to war over attempting to undo or decouple somehow these 1.2 million gay households, uh, that, that would be something, a bridge too far. Uh, we're, we'll be right back on the MedVet Show. Wishing you the very best for a holiday season with uh, joy to the world. And yes, marriage for most of us, I think, who are fortunate enough to be married, married, <clears throat> there is an association with uh, joy. Certainly, you feel that in, uh, in weddings, right? And uh, I, the one thing I, I needed to add to this uh, news item about passing one point two million same-sex households. The, um, the Census Bureau and uh, the, has come up with data state by state as to the highest percentage of same-sex couple households of any state. And uh, which uh, state do you think has the highest percentage of same-sex couple households I would have guessed uh, California, and uh, but California isn't there, partially because it is such a, a, a huge state, and there are parts of California that are somewhat conservative and uh, agricultural, and there's a Central Valley, and in any event, Hawaii has the highest percentage of same-sex couple households of any state. You know what the percent is? It's 1.4%, and that's followed by Oregon, which is second, and Delaware, both at 1.3%. The District of Columbia, Washington, however, blows them all out of the water, 2.5% of all households uh, are same-sex couples in the District of Columbia. Okay, that still means that you have 97.5% uh, that are other forms of, of households, uh, either uh, opposite-sex couples or single households uh, or people uh, living alone, single households, uh, or some other uh, form of, of household formation. The... Uh, Lowest percentage of same-sex couple households of any state is South Dakota at 0.4%, followed by Kansas, Mississippi, Idaho, North Dakota, and Montana, which are all at 0.5%. All right, the, the reason I wanted to provide this, that additional perspective is it's, it's just too easy, given the focus that... Uh, media so often put on unconventional households to believe that, well, 
I mean, I think if you ask the average American, what percentage of marriages do you think are gay marriages today? Because you hear so much about that issue. Uh, somebody would answer um, like 10 times the actual percentage, the actual percentage being uh, the for the top state, Hawaii, 1.4%. I, I don't think people would recognize that it was still, despite the broad acceptance of gay marriage, that it was still such a, uh, a, a relative rarity. I'll tell you what is not a rarity. What's not a rarity is people raving about electoral corruption. And uh, there is now a, a charge. It, it actually came out in an RNC ad uh, Republican National Committee ad about Hakeem Jeffries, the new Democratic leader in the House of Representatives. And part of what he said, and we covered it yesterday, that uh, in his uh, basic statement accepting the unanimous election by, uh, by his caucus to have him take over from Nancy Pelosi as the leader of the Democrats in Congress, uh, to have him offer uh, a hand of cooperation to work with Republicans, et cetera, et cetera. He wasn't always that reasonable. And uh, in uh, not 2019, uh, Jeffries claimed that Russia interfered in the 2016 presidential election and artificially made Trump president. And this has led the RNC to uh, attack him, basically, as an election denier. Uh, this is a new RNC ad. Listen. Russia interfered with our election, attacked our democracy for the sole purpose of artificially placing someone at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. They were successful. Okay, and then they, uh, uh, they went on the RNC to... Uh, put forward a series of screenshots of past tweets that Jeffries had made about the elections of 2016. In uh, one uh, tweet, he, he said of Trump, uh, lie more than any administration in the history of the republic, cheat, 2016 election, Russian interference, steal one or two Supreme Court seats. When will Republicans put country ahead of party? And then that's hashtag clean up corruption. And then uh, two more tweets that they highlighted from the RNC. They uh, showed a picture of uh, Hakeem Jeffries and his original tweet. And this one was from uh, November 24th of 2020. It said, uh, keep pouting. History will never accept you as a legitimate president. And... Uh, that was in uh, the uh, November of 2020. That was after the second election that President Trump clearly lost. And then it, uh, a, a subsequent tweet that says, let's be clear, Donald, the only person trying to steal the election is you and your buddies in the Kremlin. Okay, there's a great deal of this, and he was one of those people who was actually, I think, counting on the Mueller investigation to show that there was collusion between uh, Russian agents and the Trump campaign. The, the point about the Russian interference in our election, which was real, 
and uh, which Mueller said there definitely was, was basically what they were trying to do is to wreak chaos in, in our election, to turn Americans against one another, to spread all kinds of salacious rumors on all sides of things. What there wasn't was an organized effort by the Trump campaign to work uh, with uh, these Russian agents of influence and with the Russian attempts to uh, damage American democracy. And I, I think it's a stretch, particularly for the Republican National Committee, which is still humoring too much uh, election denial on the part of current-day Republicans. I mean, you have Carrie Lake out there saying that she is willing to go to jail and she wants other people to go to jail rather than accepting the fact that she lost an election. The 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 whole notion goes to a, a very fine column that Carl Rove wrote uh, that was published in the journal today, which was talked about congressional oversight and that one of the things that is going to determine whether or not the Republicans are successful and are able to sustain their very narrow majority in the House of Representatives will be that they focus on the things that really matter to the American people. And the the idea of, of going back and trying to settle old scores about charges that were not fair and were not accurate and were nasty by Democrats about Russian collusion that, that what's different about the election denial right now is that it came with the idea of actually attempting to overturn the result. Even the worst of the charges against President Trump never led to any belief that it would somehow lead to installing Hillary Clinton as president. I mean, even if they had succeeded in their impeachment attempts, you know what it would have done? It would have made Mike Pence president. And uh, Karl Rove writes today, one thing we know Americans will get from a Republican House is oversight, and lots of it. Committees will issue demands for documents and testimony and hold frequent hearings. Both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue will volley charges. House GOP leaders have already promised investigations into Hunter Biden's business dealings, the failed response to the border crisis, politicization at the Justice Department and Federal Bureau of Investigation, COVID's origin, and the Afghan fiasco. Republicans see payback and partisan advantage in oversight, but Democrats see statements possibilities for GOP self-sabotage. And what Rove is saying is that the crucial thing for Republicans is to show that there is at least some kind of positive attempt at change and accomplishment for the sake of, uh, of this greatest nation on God's green earth.